what's going oh, on, man? There it is. Good. Not much. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent. Today is March. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to say March. It's April 6th already, 2021. And today I have Tyler Humphreys here from HSBK Racing. Uh, this is the EricSwanRacing.com podcast number 49 already. Um, so it's getting up there. So welcome and thanks for talking to me for an hour or so. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, looking forward to it, I got to say. So, yeah, it's not exactly an interview. I'm trying to get away from uh, just question and answer so much, but sure, more sure. of a conversation. So you can ask me stuff. We can shoot the shit, talk about whatever. Um, and so I asked you, what, what did you want to talk about today? Some things were racing. You want to talk about the state of road racing in the U.S. and uh, racer and rider development. So yeah. uh, you want to kick, it, kick us off with one of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, honestly, I feel like the best way to start this off with kind of anything is kind of um, not to be like, oh, I want to talk about myself, but kind of just give some background about you know who I am, what I know, and uh, my experiences in the world of motorcycles and everything else. Um, I'm 22. I just moved up here to Scranton, Pennsylvania to work for uh, HSBK Racing in the at the end of last year. Um, prior to that, I got into road racing in 2016 when I was about 17 um, and, you know, started off with mini riding at New Jersey Mini GP. And um, from there, took it to CCS for some regional races and everything else, uh, mainly in the lightweight category. And um, and then in 2018, I did my first rounds of Moto America um, in the Twins Cup and had some solid finishes there, two top five finishes and a pole position. Um, and then since then, it's just kind of been a balance of racing and college at the same time. I just graduated last year uh, this time. So it's it's been a wild ride. And I, I can't believe that motorcycles have come into my life and changed it so dramatically because if it wasn't for them, I'd probably be sitting in the office somewhere doing taxes or something like that. And um, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of crazy how it all comes full circle. Um, all the different experiences I've had, all the people I've worked for over the years that kind of got me into the position I'm in. Um, it was because of uh, when I was in college, I got a job for Elrado Faraci uh, at Fast by Faraci when he was closing up his dealership in PA. And um, so I kind of got to spend a few months there working for him. One of the literally biggest legends in the world of road racing. And then um, when this whole new move for HSBK came about for them moving up here to Pennsylvania, um, they were looking for some new employees and everything else. And Farachi threw my name out there. And next thing you know, I was getting a phone call and interviewing and a few months later, here I am in the thick of it. So, yeah. That's a pretty cool story. And so you've been road racing for a while now. Was it uh, something that was always in your family or did you jump into it? Um, Road racing definitely wasn't motorcycle racing in general. Wasn't like, um, growing up, I, I rode motocross as a little kid and I was absolutely horrible at it. Like I had really no business being on a motocross track whatsoever. And, um, it was just a kind of a stroke of luck that I ended up in the world of road racing. And my dad was, you know, um, looking for someone to do some graphics work when I, when I initially got my first job in a bike shop and there's, you know, found a guy who did graphics works and in the same building was a guy who did bike stuff. Um, Metric Devil Moto, he's another guy out here in Pennsylvania, does a lot of regional stuff. He's the uh, regional Pirelli vendor and stuff as well. And next thing I knew, I had a job working for him in his shop when I was 17. And after about being there for a few months of wrenching on race bikes, I was like, well, this seems pretty awesome. I want to get into this. And then yeah. um, I did and kind of dove in head first and really became a student of the sport as much as I could. So 
whether that was watching old GP races or old world superbike races, whatever I could get my hands on, I was watching it and reading books and everything. And um, yeah, and then uh, the love just followed it and addicted thoroughly now. So <laughs> I was, I always think about the idea of what if there was a televised Wera series for amateur races or CCS or ASERA or, you know, any of those uh, West Coast series that they have that are amateur. Um, I know we have sometimes struggling uh, to get people watching the professional races, yeah. but it's growing and it's getting better all the time. So I think it would just be so cool to see the amateurs come up from their first race. Cause that's really where I had my first race was Wera, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you just grow from there. Yeah, that would be awesome. And I think in order for that to happen, I don't mean this as a way to just knock down Moto America or anything, but I feel like before we worry about the regional stuff, having that um, exposure and kind of promotion, I think the Moto America just needs to get a little bit better with what they're doing. Like the commentating lacks sometimes, like as a racer myself, like watching it and then listening to what they're saying, it's like, that's not what just happened. That's not what's going on here. Like that guy almost died uh, tipping into whatever turn. And you're not going to talk about that, but you're going to tell me about how his cousin does this. Like, I I don't care. Like we need a commentator in there who really understands the sport of road racing and can really help translate that to um, the vast majority of the public in the United States who don't know what road racing is and don't understand how it works. Because in reality, it's a very, very complex sport. Um, And with a lot of tiny nuances that you don't realize are a big deal until you're actually on a bike and doing laps and you realize, oh my God, that's actually a thing. Um, I think that, and then once that's a solid foundation, that's kind of setting the tone for how it is, then things like Azra and CCS and Weira can take that and meld it into something else. And I think it, it also starts with even before broadcasting those things, even just getting more stable results posted places and a clearer understanding of how it all works. Because in reality, a new racer coming into any of the club stuff, unless you have someone there to hold your hand and walk you through the whole process, I feel like it's a super confusing thing. Like, you're yeah. like, what are these classes? What does my bike qualify for? What doesn't it qualify for? What's the difference between expert and amateur? The list goes on and on. And um, that's a, a reason why I'm trying to do this is to help give more people information because I knew nothing. I knew nobody who raced. You know, my parents didn't even want me to have a motorcycle. So it was an uphill battle from the start. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I was so determined to do it. I was like, I don't care if I don't know how. Uh, you don't need to know all the steps to start. And I just started. Mm-hmm. And you learn, and you ask tons of questions. And because I asked so many questions, I gained a lot of friends, you know, um, and just become a sponge. Yeah. And that, I think that's something really cool about road racing too, is wherever you are in any paddock, um, whether it's a track day, a race weekend, you know, whether a regional race weekend or a pro race weekend, the camaraderie you get in the pits and the paddock and everyone always willing to help each other out and, you know, offer spare parts, offer advice, offer whatever else it's, it's awesome. I think it's one of the things that make road racing so awesome. It's just how inviting and open the community is. Right. And sometimes to our detriment, like I've helped my competitors out with parts that maybe if I didn't give them, they wouldn't erase. And yeah. like, why did I do that? But I want them out there because yeah. I know I'd rather compete with them than just beat them because you didn't have the parts. And I have one in my toolbox. That's Agreed. not right. Agreed. Completely. And, and even like uh, in that same vein, when I was, um, even more so in the amateur, my amateur year of CCS. Um, I don't think I lost a single race that year unless I crashed trying to race the experts. Um, but 
like I would always have the other amateurs or even some of the experts coming up to me, asking me questions and stuff, like riding based stuff. And I was, I'm always happy to help and point people in the right direction where as far as I can. Um, I've been very blessed to be surrounded by awesome people. Um, like I said, Mike at, 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 excuse me, my words are breaking, but Mike at Metric Devil Moto, um, Evolve GT, they've been supporters of mine since the very beginning. And just because of that and the awesome people I've been surrounded with and same as you, like I've tried to become a sponge and just soak it in as much as I can and, and just pass that knowledge along to other people, I think is something that is just crucial for us um, as racers for the sport to grow. Yeah. And um, so you've been racing a little while and now you're in the crew chief side of it or not uh, the crew side of it anyways. Um, to an extent. Um, so my role at HSBK um, is we have our online store, which is kind of um, what's HSBK is kind of founded on. Like, um, you know, obviously we specialize in the Italian bikes, so Aprilia's and Ducati's, but we have parts for every bike under the sun. So I'm more so on the management side of the website. Um, so I don't necessarily go racing or testing with the team. I kind of have to stay back and hold down the fort, but at the same time, you know, every day now in the shop, there's Loris Baz and the mechanics from overseas in the shop. So that's definitely like a starstruck moment for me. Like um, when Loris flew in, it's like all of a sudden I'm sitting there eating dinner with a guy who I was watching on TV cheering on last year. And it's just like, it's insane. Right. And so he's a world level rider. That's got to bring some, uh, some excitement to your team this year. Absolutely. It's, I think it's, it's exciting, not only for the team, but for Moto America too. Cause I remember it was a similar narrative when Tony Elias first came over, it was like, Oh, this is, this is big, right. We're right. getting a guy who has literally won MotoGP races onto, you know, the Moto America grid and similar with Loris, right? Like world Superbike guys won the races has been there in the championship fight and everything. And even last year was top 10 in the championship on arguably the slowest bike in the championship. And it's like, Ooh, it's, it's the big time now. He's got some talent. And, uh, yeah, to be competing at that level for so long is uh, it's such a high level. And mm -hmm. he comes over here in the tests and what is, of course, topping the timesheets. And everybody's like, oh, but he's been there before. But he's also a professional world level rider. So we'll see how he's if he struggles at the tracks he doesn't know. But mm -hmm. I'm sure he won't have too much trouble. I think um, when it comes to that, what a, a lot of people who aren't at that level don't realize is these guys don't struggle with learning new tracks, even the Moto America guys, like back when they first went to pit race, um, whatever, I think it was, was that 2018, I guess, or was that 27? I don't know. After the repave. Yeah. Yeah. Was... Um, even then when I think, I think it was either Josh Hayes or Bobby Fong, like they set one of their fastest laps of the weekend, like their second or third lap out on the track ever. And it's like, that's all those guys are like, they're so surgical and so precise with how they ride the bike and how they approach a new racetrack that learning a track's really only a matter of a couple of laps. And then they know where everything is. And then it's just a matter of fine tuning the machine and themselves from there. I mean, for me, I like to be comfortable with the track and have maybe, you know, a couple of practice and test sessions and maybe a track day or two before I go race it. But sometimes mm -hmm. you don't have a choice. Like no. if you're going to a track or, for them they're going to other sides of the country other countries other continents all the time so you don't get the chance to test on it beforehand you get like three tests or practice sessions and then yeah. it's time to race it <laughs> yeah and um yeah that's that's the brutal beast that is racing at that level and 
it's such it's amazing it really is like even just moto gp even like fp1 for those guys they come out just swinging like i i am obviously not at that level myself i, I love and love new tracks and i think i can pick them up pretty quick but it's impressive to watch them yeah well they also have a team of data engineers and you know technicians telling sure. them this is exactly where you should be breaking i don't know if they, they get that in detail with them but mm-hmm. i'm sure they talk about their breaking points and you know maybe i could push it further here or uh, the rear is sliding too much here mm-hmm. and they have uh, clipboards and all kinds of tv screens in front of yeah. them tons of spreadsheets and everything else yeah the uh the data side of things over the last few years um at least the last few years domestically has really also changed everything because a few years ago you didn't see you know midfield super sport teams with full-blown data acquisition on their super sport bikes but now you do and that's such a big benefit for those guys you know going to a race a track after not being there for a year and being able to sit down and look at last year's data look at this year's and, and see where they might be lacking or see where they've already improved and you know what i'm so excited for when i get back into racing in the next couple of years that I never really messed with my suspension almost at all. And mm-hmm. I never had a data acquisition. I never had a GPS lap timer that I installed on my bike or anything like that. So yeah. it's like, I was always flying in the dark. I mean, I had some uh, notes written down on loose leaf paper, you know, that was about it for my turn in points and yeah. things like that. But uh, I didn't do it. I didn't have a team. It was just me and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, yeah. but, but I, I was fast, you know, um, you just, uh, it's amazing what you, how much better I think I could be with, uh, with a team or at least one extra person, another set of hands, mm-hmm. uh, that's always dedicated to coming, who knows the bike or who knows at least your machinery. Yeah. And at the club stuff at the local level, even just having someone there to take your tire warmers off and help you put fuel in the bike and little stuff like that makes such a big difference. It just takes that little bit of extra weight off your shoulders and allows you to really focus in on, um, on what's going on and, you know, what you need to do as a rider. For sure. So uh, what was on your mind today? What do you want to talk about? Oh, man. Um, it's, what do I want to talk about? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just love talking about anything and everything involving racing. I really do. Like, that's all it comes down to. And um, it's funny, like, talking to the mechanics that we have now on the team from uh, ones from Italy, ones from Britain, um, top tier guys, um, and like talking to them about like how overseas, right. You know, road racing is a commonly known sport, like their friends who are not necessarily super into it, still know what it is and, you know, still know it's a thing and it's still a big deal. Um, whereas here in the States, like going through college, I didn't encounter another person who even knew what Moto America was, let alone, you know, Moto GP or anything like that. Um, and just, Somehow, if I just hope and pray, like obviously the the disparity there is because motorcycles are just such a bigger part of life in Europe and Asia. Like pretty much everyone, you know, everyone has motorcycles or knows what they are. They're just more ingrained in culture. Whereas here, I feel like they're more treated as a, a commodity or a toy or something to go do on the weekends or whatever. Whereas you know, overseas, it's a lifestyle. Um, yeah. And I don't know if there's any coming back from that. I, I hate to be like a guy who's like, oh, road racing is dying in the States, but it almost kind of is in a sad way. Like well, there's just not a lot of young interest in it, unfortunately. So I think it comes down to, you know, uh, school and, and what they do in school, everybody goes and play football, soccer, hockey, you know, and there's no 
road racing motorsport avenue yeah. for them to go into because there's so many red flags about um, danger maybe or expense um, you know but a bigger factor is just our culture i think everybody in the states we tend to get cars when we're 16 mm-hmm. you know in europe they get where they get uh, scooters when they're 12, you know, and yeah. they just progress from there. And most people never get scooters uh, in the States. My first car was a motorcycle. Yeah. I bought a motorcycle uh, in cash when I was 16 years old. Yeah. And I, I didn't have to buy a car because I used my brother's and he didn't have to use it all that much. So it kind of worked out. Um, but in Michigan, it kind of sucks to have only a two wheeled yeah. machine because yeah. it's negative 35 degrees sometimes. And there's a foot of snow on the ground. Yeah. For sure. And, and also, I think a part of it, too, is when it comes to our culture is I think we as a as an American people tend to like things that offer instant gratification a lot more than we like things that take a lot of work and effort to get gratification from. And and that's the thing about racing, any racing, whether it be road racing, dirt bike racing, car racing, whatever, the amount of work, time, effort, money, blood, sweat and tears you got to pour into even have a successful race weekend, even if that only means finishing all the races is astronomical, right? Like the, the amount of things you have to have going on in your head to prepare for something like that is huge. And it's, it's easily off-putting, especially when you can say, well, why would I go do that when I can go, you know, I don't know, whatever else you're other fishing, exactly. (laughs) Right. Go fishing for an afternoon, spend 20 bucks on some bait and whatever, and be done for the day and pack it up and have a good time. And I get that to an extent, but I'm sure you know yourself, obviously, having raced, like there's nothing like that feeling of gritting up for a race and staring down towards turn one with 20 other bikes around you and revving up. Like you, you just can't replace that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I can't wait to get back to that. You know, I'm building my own business, ericswanracing.com, to help fund my race program. Yeah. I was racing, I'd race from, I did track days, a full season track days and 20, uh, 2011, and then a race from 12 to 15, mm-hmm. and uh, became a novice, expert, pro. I got my pro license, but I didn't do any pro races. It kind of ran out of money, and yeah. uh, you know, I had 20 sponsors, but it wasn't enough, so I'm just trying to help fund it myself with selling motorsports products. I have seven rows of shelving in my, in my basement here, ESR yeah. World Headquarters, um, and so I also do drop shipping. So I have products like M4 performance exhaust, driven racing, Moto D, uh, you know, bike stands, tire warmers, rear sets, all kinds of uh, bike parts and trying to mm-hmm. expand into gear. Um, I have Revit race suits, a um, lot of different apparel brands, Kriga, Rucka, and Rocker. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what's up. Yeah. That, and that's, um, that's important too obviously like having that supply chain there um, and knowing where to get the parts too, as a guy getting into the sport, because getting into the sport, you can be easily tempted to be like, Oh, I want these Chinese rear sets and they're they're half the price and these tire warmers will work, but getting the knowledge on that stuff too, at a, at an early point in your career of road racing, if you will, is, is really important. And something else that I think I learned real quick too, was it was literally my, second ever uh regional race weekend with ccs and i had done very well my first one i had beat a bunch of the i had beaten all the experts in one of my races so like i was going in the second one with high expectations on my own shoulders so like all right i did that last time now i need to go and do it again i need to show everyone that i'm the best amateur there ever was or ever will be 
first race of the weekend. It was actually my birthday too. My mom's first time ever coming to the track to see me race. And on the warm up lap of my first race of the weekend, I smash myself and break my wrist and collarbone simultaneously. Oh no. Yeah. And <laughs> so like we go to the hospital, I get, you know, kind of patched up and my parents are like, all right, well, we're going to go home. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to go back to the track. So they make, they let me go back to the track for the night and everything else. And I was walking around, um, riding around on a scooter still with my arm all slung up and everything. And I saw a buddy of mine uh, named Joe and he was like, listen, man, he's like, uh, no bullshit for a second. I've seen way too many young kids who have, you know, talent on a bike and have a good, you know, crew around them and everything else get into this sport and go way, way too hard, way, way too fast. And you just burn yourself out because it doesn't care how much you put in, right? The sport doesn't care how much effort you put in or how much you care or anything else. It'll chew you up and it'll spit you back out with broken bones and a broken bike like that. And he's like, do yourself and everyone else around you a favor and just slow down a little bit, take it easy. Like there's no reason to go out there and kill yourself for nothing. And that conversation, whatever it was four or five years ago at this point has stuck with me all the way through. And honestly, I've seen a lot of people my age who, you know, got in the sport were way faster than me and, you know, really good and had good speed, you know, it went right into the KTM cup when it was around. And then they had a few bad weekends and, you know, things got a little, you know, hectic on the family side or whatever. And then they just drop off the face of the planet and you never see them on a motorcycle again. And well, yeah, I, it takes I, a lot of dedication, yeah. like you're saying, because there are so many hardships and trials and tribulations and engine malfunctions and transmission blows yeah. that uh, you have to really be, I guess, uh, what's the right word? Stubborn or yes. <laughs> <laughs> just have to have this certain mentality that I don't care what happens. I'm going to get through it and uh, I'm going to be better on the other side of it. And yes. some, a lot of people don't have that. And if you don't have that, you're not going to last very long in racing. Exactly. Exactly. And just yeah, just being in it for the long haul. I think that's the important thing because I, I will personally, I want to be doing track days still and coaching and, and racing still in 10, 15 years time from now. Right. And I know that if I give it everything I have in myself to go, I, I got to make this Moto America round. I got to make all these regional rounds. I have to, I have to, I have to, I'm going to end up in a situation where I'm out of money. My relationships, whether it be with friends or family or sponsors are strained. Because when you're running at that high of a you know level and trying to do all these things, it's just, it's hard. And unless you have all the means to just pay for everything up right, it's going to come with financial hardships as well. Because I don't think a lot of people realize just how much money you spend road racing. Yeah, and, it's pretty ridiculous. Even at yeah. a regional level, I mean, it's what, at least, at least $1,500 to $2,000 per event. Yeah, right? for sure. If you're just doing the bare minimum. And yep. what I did was... I did it kind of crazy. Maybe most people don't do it this way, but I did all, um, all but one race that I could yeah. every weekend. So I would do both C's, both B's and both A's. So both 600, 750 and 1000 super bike and super stock. Yeah. And then, uh, and then sometimes it'd be a double header. So you'd have six on Saturday, six on Sunday. Yep. Uh, but normally it'd be the solo 20, which is not for points. Um, just like a 20 lap race, yep. uh, in your class. And then you'd have the six on set uh, sunday for points so mm -hmm. that's a lot of racing and you know i only have one motorcycle yeah um so i'd be i'd be going through two rears and a front usually per weekend mm -hmm. um so that adds up quick you know big time and, um but it's it's a blast man i can't wait to get back to doing it um like you're saying it, it's so financially straining and 
I found everything in my life, like the physical items that I had aside from racing were just getting broken. My clothes was like, I needed to buy new clothing, like everything. My shoes had holes in them, like everything went to racing. And so uh, I'm out of racing. Uh, I've been doing other racing, like mountain bike and foot racing. It's cheaper now. But um, uh, now that I'm out of it, I'm starting to like buy new, you know, buy new socks and like the the small things, you know? um it's just you put off those so many things because i need a new lap timer i need a new rear set you know mm-hmm. i need a new track days coming up next month it's like geez it's just i'm not made of money yet and until my business is selling uh a lot yeah um i'm gonna stay at, at arm's length because i love the sport um i really do and uh the only way i can feasibly be in the sport until i'm 90 years old is if i have a business that's producing mm-hmm. selling a lot of stuff so that's my plan is to sell a lot of stuff um so if you want to help my journey go to ericsfundracing.com and spend all your money please absolutely absolutely (laughs) no i'm in the same way like uh i remember in college right like everyone talks about broke college kids and um that was still absolutely me but i i was broke by choice 100 because i'd be like the most frugal guy right like buy the cheapest beer and no i don't need to eat out i don't need to eat out blah 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 and then the very next weekend turn around and drop $800 on rear tires alone. And it's like, those are the trade-offs, right? Like, and that's what I think, at least in my generation, I feel like a lot of the people I serve, um, a lot of my friends, not that it's a bad thing or anything. It's like, it's just that extra level. Everyone knows is like, why are you doing that? Come on, just, you have money, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you don't understand. You need to save those dollars. Every dollar counts when you're standing in the registration line, you know, you got a $400 bill coming up. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely figure out how to uh, live on less. I, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, I've, I've figured out how to, you know, live on a smaller percentage of my income and you can save the rest of it. And it really changes your life. For sure. For sure. Um, recently too, well, not recently, but about a year ago, I got into the um, video making side of things too. Cause I've always been like, I'm a fan of guys on YouTube, like um, Adam LZ is like the main one. He's like a drifter and everything else. And um, I've been following him for a lot of years where he was like before he was just a BMX guy and uh, now he's like a pro level drift driver and you know I, I watched that transition you know over the years just following him on YouTube and I go you know what why isn't there anyone doing stuff like that for road racing so he is a drift car driver or drift yeah. motorcycle drift car driver so okay. and he drifts in formula drift which is like the uh, national championship for drifting you know cars built to the moon with a thousand horsepower and everything and, yeah um so I followed that and I was like, and, and simultaneously watching him, you know, transition into drifting and, you know, get better at the sport. I also watched all of a sudden drifting burst onto the scene and kind of become a way bigger thing than it was 10 years ago. Cause 10 years ago, I don't feel like it was a thing at all. And now all of a sudden drifting's pretty big again. Um, whether that be for whatever, I feel like I can only attribute at least part of it to guys like him. Um, on the grassroots level, whether it be through YouTube or Instagram or whatever, it's bringing that and exposing it to people who never thought it was attainable. Um, Because everyone's always like, same thing with drifting. I'm sure that's expensive. Can't do it, blah, blah, blah. But then you see someone else your age doing it and you're like, oh. So I thought in my head, I was like, all right, well, maybe I can do the same thing with motorcycle racing. So I think I put out like a a dozen videos over the year, last year, over the season. And um, they did pretty well. I'm like almost got like a thousand subscribers now, but it's just trying to do things like that. Um, not only for my personal gain, but also just 
in the back of my head also thinking maybe this can help kind of revive road racing in the states and, and give it a new breath of fresh life yeah i mean the more people who are putting out quality content uh people want to watch that around the motorsports scene i think is great you know i don't know if people are gonna love this or this format but i'm just trying something that for me is nearly free all yeah. it takes is some time and uh you know, it's just my first try, first try of doing something. You know, I do have a gimbal for like doing cool video, but I'm two and a half hours away from the nearest racetrack and yeah. I don't have any cool things to shoot other than the squirrels in the backyard. Yeah, yeah. that's that's been the struggle for me too over the past six months. It's like, well, I'm not at a racetrack, so there's not really anything to make a video of. And I'm not at the point where I'm going to carry around my GoPro and do a daily vlog. I don't think I even want to watch that. So I'm not going <laughs> to ask anyone else to sit through that. Um, but what's really nice, I think, about it is how cheap the uh, how cheap it's become to enter that. Like I bought a year ago now, I bought a, a GoPro 8, um, a little stick, some extra batteries and, you know, a few other accessories. And that camera does amazing quality, better than what my computer can um, edit. So at that point, you know, I can walk around, video stuff with it, talk to it, put it on the bike for the races. Then I go back and I like commentate over the race footage because again, same thing. I think if you're not really into racing, watching a, you know, seven lap race with repetitive things going on, it can be, well, what's going on? Oh, this is boring. I don't want to watch this. So I think the voiceover kind of helps bring a nice level there, kind of explaining my thought process at the time, what's going on at the track, um, where my bike is and why and everything else. And um, yeah, the let the, the expense to enter that market has gotten so much lower. So it's nice that you can kind of have a, a one-stop shop camera for it all. Um, granted, I'm sure I can make my quality better and have a separate camera, this, that, and the other, but uh, again, I'm getting by with what I got. So. Yeah. And the cell phones, like I have an iPhone yeah. X, it's a 4k, it's a 4k <laughs> camera. It's better than my camera is. Yeah. 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 It's insane. That's too. Like uh, there's tons of guys on YouTube too. Where, very large followings who just film stuff with their iPhone. And it's like, geez, yeah, that's all it takes nowadays. For sure. I mean, it's not ideal because then you got to make sure you don't have enough or you don't have anything on your phone because yeah. I've had it before where uh, I ran out of space recording something and you lose the end of it. That's mm -hmm. not good. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, they're really great quality and the prices come down tremendously. So everybody can get into it. It's just uh, who wants to stay in it for the long haul. Cause you see tons of people starting podcasts, they go in and fade out or yep. start on because you might get a hundred subscribers or a thousand subscribers. You're like, that's not enough, yeah. you know, and they quit. So, yeah. or they get bored, you know, it's not enough. I don't know, feedback for them or something. So like I'm in it. I don't know if I'll be doing this every week forever, yeah. but I think I'll be doing this at some level because I just want to have some sort of voice that I can speak to people you know, I, I don't think it'll be a Joe Rogan level, millions of people uh, watching it every day, but who knows? You never know. Yeah. And, and for sure. But that's like, again, going back to what I said earlier about like the instant gratification versus not instant gratification that plays back into that because, you know, even if, you know, this never blows up and you do it until the day you die, I think it is worth it to do it every day until the day you die, as long as you enjoy, enjoy doing it. And that's all it comes down to. If, you're enjoying what you're doing, regardless of feedback, regardless of what other people think, and just doing your own thing, I, I think success is bound to happen, unless yeah. you're doing something outlandish, but <laughs> obviously we're not here, but right. um, I mean, like, even on, like, I'm a Joe Rogan fan, of course, I feel like most 
of America is now, which is insane to say. And I'm sure he would say it's the same thing as like that. He's like, he never thought it would get to that where it's at now. He was just some idiot talking into a microphone. And, and I, I think that's the same for almost everyone. Like, if you go at it with an expectation of, oh, I want to rule the world and I want to be the biggest this and the biggest that, it'll never materialize. But if you put the work in and, and work silently and just do it for the love of doing it, I, I think success follows that um, happily. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm so glad that I've done this with certain people, like specifically Dustin Apgar, mm. who's passed away recently. Yeah. I did a podcast Powerful. with him in December, three, yeah. like four months ago now. And uh, I'll never get to talk to him again. Yeah. And a lot of people won't. And honestly, that's something awesome for friends and family that that podcast is even around. Um, yeah. I, I got to meet Dustin, a few guys. He was a really great guy and uh, definitely a, a tragic loss in our community for sure. It stinks, man. Uh, he was super into that para motoring and yeah. uh, we talked about it quite a bit on that one. I rewatched it the other day and uh Man, you can't steer someone away from someone something they love. Yeah. And people could say the same thing about, you know, motorcycling is so dangerous. Well, why do you do that? You know, um, it's you got to do what you want to do and do it as safely as possible. Don't be stupid about it. Um, you know, I don't I have no idea what the circumstances of his crash. Yeah, were, I don't what, know either. But whether it's the wind could catch you at the wrong time, you just don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Well, and that's one of the things that led me into the track world as well was I was, you know, 17 and I was taught, I was like, to, with my parents, I was like, I really want a street bike. I really want a street bike. My parents were like, hell no. They're like, you're not allowed to do that until you're financially independent, <laughs> blah, 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 all these things. Um, and then the idea of racing on the track came around and they were like, fine, as long as you're not on the street. And, you know, at first I was like, well, that's stupid. The race track's more dangerous, but after being in it for a few years, it's almost an immediate realization of a how much safer you know a racetrack is in the road but b how dangerous motorcycles really are because like I, I consider myself pretty good at riding a motorcycle and the idea of riding around on a street terrifies me like you never know what's around that corner you never know the condition of the asphalt you never know what direction the cars are going to be going and you can be an amazing motorcycle rider, but you just can't take into account all those variables that are just yeah. completely out of your control. And, and, and I think it really depends also on what city you're riding in because yeah. holy crap, I, I work in Pontiac, unfortunately. And um, Pontiac, Michigan is um, it's not the best city. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the drivers <laughs> don't drive very well. I saw four people run red lights different lights at different times on the way to work today oh my you know God. it's just it's constant nobody uses a signal ever just the laws don't apply i guess i don't know what the what's happening but it's because no the cops can't um, the city can't afford to pay cops to 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 um you know to police the motorists so they just don't yeah and it's I, like i'd agree like um now, granted, I'm only, you know, 22. I've only been driving for six or so years now, but even six years ago versus to now, I feel like the roads have gotten more sketchy and I see more drivers doing stupid things and just not using their heads, not using turn signals, like not checking blind spots, even like, it's just, I don't know if it's because our requirements for obtaining a driver's license are just way too easy, or if it's just, 
I don't know what else it could be, honestly, or just no one, no one realizes they're driving around in a couple thousand pound metal box that can kill people in an instant. <laughs> like no one realizes that for some reason. And I don't know that licensing is really the fix. I don't know what the fix is. I'm just rambling mm. because even if you fixed it, there's that's still drive. They're just not going to have a license. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we see that every day. I feel like where people driving without insurance or with a suspended license. And hell, I have friends who I know have driven with suspended licenses. And it's just like, I don't know what, how you even go about <laughs> fixing that. Like that's a, yeah, that's a big problem. It really is a big problem. It almost be like a breathalyzer for a license or to swipe yes. your license to drive the car. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So oh. yeah, I just got a, I had to go in and get a new uh, picture taken for my license. It expired because, uh, you know, just it did after a certain period of time. And yeah. uh, my, they voided my regular license. It gave me a paper copy of my temporary license. I went, I went to get dinner the other night and uh, they were hassling me about my, my legit, you know, paper temporary <laughs> license. And I was like, I'm just leaving. I'm going to the next place. I'm going to the next place. I don't have time for this. <laughs> it was ridiculous, man. I couldn't believe, uh, uh, I was getting hassled about, oh, you can't sit there. You, can. I was like, I'm just, I'm just leaving. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. That's <laughs> it. That's good enough for me. Thanks for nothing. I'll see you guys yeah. later. I went across the street, went to Black Rock, and had a delicious meal. Yes. <laughs> good. Good. As you should. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the regulations and just things we things we as a nation seem to care about, and then things we don't just don't seem to make sense sometimes. For sure. Um, like, and so um, HSBK, that's in Houston, is that right? So it was located in Houston, Texas, um, and, and Oklahoma. We had a location. Well, we still have a location in Oklahoma. Um, that's just kind of a small race shop as well as some outdoor motocross tracks for private training. Um, but basically the whole business, the, the main part of the business now is located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, so we developed a good relationship with North American Warhorse over the course of last season. They were one of the main sponsors for the team. Um, and North American Warhorse is a large motorsports dealership out here. Um, they have, you know, just about every brand under the sun under one roof. So after forming that relationship, the owner, Bobby, and the, um, the owners of North American Warhorse kind of came together and said, all right, let's, you know, work together on this next season. And so inside of North American Warhorse in Scranton, um, we built a whole new top of the line workshop and everything. Um, absolutely beautiful. And that's where we do all the Ducati and Aprilia service for North American Warhorse now, as well as run our race team out of. So over at the shop right now, where it came from not too long ago, we got, you know, a pretty immaculate shop with, you know, street bikes and everything else, as well as, you know, the, this, uh, the full-blown super bikes over there on some other lifts as well. So it's a, it's been a cool experience setting up this whole new shop and everything. Well, not whole new because it's, you know, obviously in an existing dealership, but it's still kind of a, a whole new side of that dealership. So um, that move was big. And uh, trust me, I did a lot of inventorying of products when that move happened, but it's, uh, it's definitely, it's on the ground and it's running now. So it's, it's definitely success so far. And what does a move of an entire business look like? And what is that? How long does that take? Oh man, that was a, um, I'll, I'll tell you. So I was, um, I was up here in Scranton a few weeks before everything got moved out, just kind of preparing the new warehouse and, you know, just making sure everything was ready to receive this stuff. And I think in total, we got two 18 wheeler, uh, two semis full of stuff on pallets, um, as well as like a few trailers and, and vans as well. And it was just, 
it, it was a bit chaotic. I won't lie to you. It was just a, a lot of stuff coming through the doors and of course the whole new inventory system too. So everything had to get added into that. And at the same time, managing all the orders, the website had and everything. So it was a lot and it was uh, definitely a little dizzying at moments, but we definitely made it through that period and, and we got everything set up now to where it's, it's running efficiently. That's a caravan of an entire business. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> it was nuts. Uh, and so tell me a little bit about what you do at the, at the company. Okay. So basically we have, like I said earlier, our website, hsbkracing.com. Um, and then of course our service department. So I'm the parts manager um, slash parts specialist, uh, whichever you want to prefer. Um, so my job is managing all the website orders, um, talking to customers on the phone who have you know, questions about specific products, how they fit, um, new stuff like that, and then managing all the orders. So any day I'll get anywhere from 20 to 50 orders a day that I have to process. And, you know, if it's something I don't have in stock, it's something I got to order, um, you know, so managing the ordering of all the stuff, the receiving of all the stuff, all the orders that have to go out. And we also have some eBay websites, um, uh, eBay stores. And so checking those, making sure those orders are getting shipped. And at the same time, also dealing with our dealers and making sure they get the parts that they need. Um, and then coming up here shortly, I'm not sure what the planned launch date is, but we're launching a new website called duckperformance.com. That is going to be basically OEM Ducati parts um, or anything Ducati, whether it's race parts or OEM parts. Um, so it's going to have, you know, all the parts catalogs from Ducati on there. So if you need, you know, this random OEM bolt from your 999, we're going to be able to get it for you. So my day-to-day -day is, oh, and then on top of that, whenever the service department needs parts for whatever bike, um, the guy who has to get them for them and, you know, figure out what we need, what we don't need, and et cetera. So it's a full-time job, it sounds oh, like. Yeah. yeah, it's a full-time <laughs> job and a half at the moment, but it's going well. And so are you dealing with mainly OEM parts or aftermarket? Right now, it's almost entirely aftermarket. Um hsbkracing.com it's all aftermarket for the uh, yeah it's pretty much all aftermarket with the exception of like oil filters and small things like that um <clears throat> and then the new website will be a lot of oem ducati parts so you know on, on our main website we carry brands you know db holders um man now i'm blanking on it because now i'm being asked spider uh spiegler brake products um brembo of course um stm a lot of italian brands that we're the only importers for uh, which is kind of cool and so getting to learn the nuances of all those products has definitely been a fun ride and um, learning a lot about the Italian bikes too, because I had a lot of experience in, on Japanese bikes, you know, Suzuki's, Yamaha's, et cetera, and, you know, minimal experience on the uh, Italian side of things. So getting into that has definitely been a whole new world of how do the hell do these things work? But <laughs> I've definitely got a very good handle on it now. And um, I definitely know more about RSV4s and V4s than I ever thought I would. So. Yeah, there's a whole new world of parts and brands over there, overseas in Europe that we Americans aren't always exposed to. Um, yes. I myself am a dealer of Moto D, and Moto D is an importer of Italian products like Spark Exhaust, mm -hmm. IRC Quick Shifters, and uh, Easy Grip Tank Grips, uh, and all those sorts of things. So yeah, yeah it's it's like, oh, this is kind of like the ones that we were using over here, but it's just a different brand. It's great still. I mean, no problems. I've, I haven't had any issues with like Bonamici Italian mm -hmm. rear sets. Mm -hmm. you, all, you have to sound, say it like you're Italian. Bonamici. You, you got to put the uh, spirit into it for <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, no, yeah, that's, that's definite. The only thing that's, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you've experienced this over the last couple of months, but as a parts guy, 
dealing in these COVID times has been a, a bit of a nightmare. All the shipping delays. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm getting a lot oh of my customers, gosh. you know, mainly through Amazon, actually. I'm getting a lot really? of customers um, like, where's my package? But that's where the most international sales for me are coming from. Um, hmm. So, hmm. yeah, a lot of them on there. But it's like, there's nothing I can do. Just wait a couple more days. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, when you got to tell, like, yeah, when you find out that one of your suppliers who you have a huge shipment coming from is just their country went into a state of emergency last week, you're like, well, that's great. Now yeah. I got to tell, you know, all these people that are waiting for their fairings for the season that it's going to be a little while. But those are just kind of the cards that were dealt with right now. And hopefully we can return to normalcy here soon um, to where supply chain issues aren't such a big deal. Yeah, it's been crazy. Like I have this, I still have a day job. I go into yeah. work every day, 6 to 2 p.m. And lately 6 to 3 getting a little overtime yeah. and uh, we can't get people to show up to work to, to run our lines. We have, uh, you know, lines that blank different things for aluminum, mm -hmm. uh, different shapes, and uh, we can't get people to show up to run them. So nope. we can't run the lines. We can't make the product um, like 20 people not showing up to work. That's a mutiny. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. ridiculous. It's uh, today. And that's like same thing for us. Like it's almost impossible to find good help right now. And not even good help, literally anyone even willing to work. Um, I, I don't know what's going on, whether it's just because the the financial incentive not to work is still there, honestly, because unemployment's still ripe and yeah. their hand, handouts are coming left and right. And, you know, I'm not saying that those things shouldn't be there for people who need them. But when we can't even find someone to come in and wash bikes for us for, you know, $15 an hour, there's something wrong. Yeah, like, I just heard because um, we were talking about this today at work. Taco Bell is hiring at $14 an hour right now. It's insanity. So it's like, um, how much do you want to pay to get that worker in there? You're not making any money if the line's not running. So I'd rather maybe lose a few dollars. I don't know. Or maybe yeah. break even rather than not do it at all and pay yeah. the customer. For sure. For sure. So it's that and balance, you know, trying to find labor who's going to show up and, and do good work and, and pass a drug test. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the supplies too, like I know a lot of our suppliers are, they just can't get the, the physical material to do what they need to do and make the parts they need to make. Um, and yeah, definitely like if you had told us two years ago that this would be the state of the world right now, you would have gotten laughed out of the room, but here we are. And we uh, are. another one, ketchup is in short supply. Is it? Ketchup, I just, uh, I just <laughs> I read an article. I read an article today that said uh, because all of the ketchup and and sharing serving sizes is uh, they don't want to use that at restaurants. They're all using the single serve packets. The packets that makes sense. And they can't make enough packets because everybody because COVID only spreads through big bottles of ketchup. That's the only way you're going to get it. Uh, yep. You should put a quote <sighs> Tyler Humphreys under that. <laughs> yeah, please do. I'll gladly own that one. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, things are changing fast. Um, things are crazy, that's for sure. So for I always sure. ask people, are you a video creator? And you are. So yes. what, I don't think you said your what your YouTube channel was, though. My YouTube channel is just Tyler Humphreys 429. Uh, that's my race number. And if you uh, Google it or put it in on YouTube, I'm the first guy that comes up, which I'm a little bit proud of at this point. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I'll pop right up. All right. And then uh, while we're at it, what other social medias are you on? 
I'm, I have an Instagram as well as a Facebook, same thing, Tyler Humphreys, 429, you'll find me on Instagram, um, Facebook, you'll find me under Tyler Humphreys, I have a racing profile, um, and that, that sums it up, I stay away from the Twitter all around, even, even on my personal side, it just seems like that's a dumpster fire at the moment, so staying away from that, but yeah, if you want to check out any of my stuff, um, like I said, I haven't posted any new videos on my YouTube in a while, but the season's just about underway for me here, so hopefully the next few weeks here i'll be putting some content back out on that and i try to stay current with my instagram posts but honestly i usually forget until i'm actually it's hard when i've run out of riding po pictures to post without posting right. the same events <laughs> pictures over and over again so that's at a bit of a standstill at the moment but um getting back on a bike here soon hopefully i've been you know riding my dirt bike a lot over the winter um when i can in the woods with my buddies but looking forward to get back on some tarmac and go fast that's what i'm looking forward to and so tell me about your 2021 plans 2021 so um in i'll go back a little bit um just because we got some time to kill them why not um in 2019 the uh the guy I first worked for mike at metric devil moto um, up here in pennsylvania um good buddy of mine like i said and i worked for him that's how i got introduced to the sport and i, I stopped when i went off to college but since then he's been my suspension guy my tire guy basically um, my mentor, if you will, all the way around. And um, I, I really can't thank Mike enough for all he's done for me over the years and um, the time and the effort he's put into my program and my racing. It's just, I, I can't believe that someone would do it for me. And I, I can't appreciate, say how much I appreciate it, but um, I raced his GSXR 600 that he has um, as kind of a shop bike almost um, in 2019 for a few rounds. And that just came to a short end when I kind of high-sided it pretty good and separated my shoulder and ripped the bike up pretty good as well. Um, and then I got back off that bike and was racing my uh, SV650 again for a while. Um, and then this past winter, we kind of made the decision to reignite the GSXR program. So we've gone and we've kind of um, addressed some of the issues on the bike and you know updated it, new fairings, new this, new that. Um, and so the plan is to come out swinging at CCS, New Jersey, end of this month on the Jixer and just kind of seeing where I stack up, not chasing championships or anything. Um, it's just too expensive. And honestly, I don't quite have the time for it or the uh, financial ability. So just going to go racing when I can and when I want to and when I think it's a, a good idea, because the uh, the middleweight grid is pretty stacked at CCS like there's a there's yeah. heavy hitters quite a ways back and the grids are usually like 40 bikes deep. Um, so going out there and running around mid pack is not the kind of guy I am. I don't like racing unless, all right, I know there's a chance that I can win this or be in the fight at least. So um, I actually uh, kind of pulled the plug on the first round of the season, which was supposed to be this weekend, just because I just felt like I haven't ridden since last year. I didn't want to go there and just waste my own time, waste his time and waste a bunch of money to, for some mediocre results. So the, the plan is to do Jersey end of this month and just try to go fast. And I, I'm very, uh, I'm pretty lap time oriented when it comes to myself. Like, yes, I like winning and I like being on the podium and everything else, but the most satisfaction I get is from setting a lap time. That, that's by far where I get the happiest. And I know what the bike I'm on is capable of because guys like Brandon Posh and Xavier Zayat have ridden it before me and done pretty insane lap times at places. So I, I have that goal in my head of, all right, I want to get near those lap times, if not do those lap times. Yeah, you know, it'd be really cool to, uh, if you have the opportunity, look at some of their data and compare uh, at the same kind of tracks and what they're doing differently. Because uh, yeah. I remember 
uh, one guy put his lap timer on my bike to see what I was doing. I was like, that's kind of strange, but sure. If you want to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he, he showed me the data afterwards. It was just a track day. And, um, you could see the differences. I was on the gas for like, you know, 30 feet longer. And then before he even, you know, it was just massively different, mm -hmm. different. And to see those, the data between a, um, a Daytona 200 winner and yourself is just so valuable. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and that's, that's something else I've been super blessed with is. So when I was first working for uh, metric double moto during that time, Xavier, um, you know, he was obviously been a moto America super sport guy for the past few years and just absolutely ridiculously fast on a motorcycle. And when I first started working there, um, Mike, the owner still had Xavier on one of his R sixes for all the CCS stuff. And Xavier was the uh, typical club dominating fast kid where he was just on such another level than everyone else that they had to bring out, you know, 150 horsepower R sixes to beat him. So, um, and over those years and, and since then I've become uh, good friends with Xavier and, you know, a lot of other guys and it's so nice having them around to be like, Hey, listen, turn three, I feel like I'm, I'm butchering it. What, like I'm doing this and, you know, talking through it with another rider and, and being able to have those conversations with a guy like that, that I know, not just like a guy I kind of know, but like a true friend is such a valuable asset. Oh yeah. It helps you shave seconds off of your lap times. Yes, for sure. For just sure. Getting that shortcut to uh, the fastest route is mm -hmm. uh, really helpful. Definitely. Um, and then at Jersey, knowing that on the bike I'm riding, he's done 25s at Jersey, which if, if you've never ridden there, that probably doesn't mean anything, but <laughs> 25s are fast. Like yeah. that's a fast lap time there. And knowing the bike I'm on is capable of that. It's just kind of, it lights a fire underneath me, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's always more time to find. And he's still thinking, oh man, there's another two tenths out there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you've been following any of the racing this year? Oh yeah. I've been, a, I've been pretty, um, that's the nicest thing I got to say about working in a bike shop is when it's MotoGP weekend all day, Friday, I have free practice on the TV going while I'm doing my work. Um, awesome. So that's been really nice. Um, very excited for the world Superbike season. <clears throat> I think almost arguably a little bit more than GP. The GPs have been great. Um, I mean, actually, I don't know if that's a fair thing to say. I'm excited for them both. Um, the GPs have been great each class it's exciting to see cam and um, joe doing well in moto two um, i think cam's ride the first round of moto two was absolutely insane 22nd to 11th passing <laughs> previous moto three world champions and yeah Phenomenal. very impressive very impressive and then same with garrett gerloff so far you know third in testing behind johnny ray and i think it was scott redding like that's fast company right there and you know his podiums last year um that's that's something that gives me hope for the future with American road racing is these guys on the world stage kicking ass right now. Yeah, you know, I think there's been a long drought of people just not having opportunities or not making opportunities. People say all the time, oh, there aren't any more rides. Well, I'm not looking for a ride anymore. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of like so exclusive. If you even get one, you're, it's it's so lucky. Yes. Um, I think you should just create your own rides. Um, and now that's really hard to do, like at a world level, like how do you, you know, start a team from scratch at the world mm -hmm. level, uh, but anything can be done. Uh, if you're dedicated enough, you got enough mm -hmm. money, you can, you can start your own team. Yeah. And that's something that I think <clears throat> obviously the American racing team coming around, um, and being, you know, born and 
seeing the success that they had with Joe last year, that kind of made it like, okay, now there's a place for these American guys to actually go there. There's not even actually go, but I think even just having the presence of guys like, you know, cam and in the world, uh, in the MotoGP paddock, and then, um, uh, Garrett in the world Superbike paddock, even just having an American presence there makes it easier for other American riders to get there. Um, Cause it kind of opens the doors, right? Like they, they fought hard and long. I mean, for, you know, Cam's a six time uh, Superbike champion and that's how long it took him to get overseas with a, a proper ride and everything else. And I think now that those doors have kind of been knocked down that hopefully it's a lot easier for other Americans to follow through and, you know, of course, you got Brandon going over to uh, the BSB paddock again this year. Um, so that's just more good news and everything else. And, um, you know, obviously, I hope to see more follow. Like, not that I want to see our good riders leave here, but I also want to see, you know, the up and coming riders have a place to develop and everything else. Um, because at the end of the day, ultimately, in the world of road racing, the ultimate goal is to get to Europe. That's it. That's where the money's made. That's where the big races are at. That's where it's at, right? That's where you want to be as motorcycle racer. And it just makes me happy to see guys getting there. It's been literally since Ben Spees that we've seen guys really have a lot of success overseas. So it's exciting times. Yeah. And, you know, everything's so close now. Uh, MotoGP, it was the closest race ever, the closest top 15. I think the insane. top 15 within nine seconds is ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was a freight train for those last couple laps there at the front. Yeah. Um, who's your, uh, who's your pick for the championship? Ooh, uh, you know, maybe Davizioso or Cal Crutchlow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fair answer. That's a fair answer for this season. Because I don't know, everybody's so close. And uh, although Ducati is so fast, what about Yamaha winning the first two races? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, and of course, I think you'll see the KTMs do a lot better once they get into the European tracks because they've never done well at Qatar um, ever. The KTMs have always struggled there, um, and even though Miguel, Miguel still put in an impressive ride over the weekend. Um, so there'll be a contender again for podium spots. Hopefully the Patronus team can kind of figure out their stuff and you'll get more Videli um, up at the front again because I honestly coming into the season, he was one of my picks for the championship after how he ended last year. Yeah, what's going on with uh, two Yamahas, uh, factory Yamahas at the front, and then two satellite Yamahas at the back? How does that happen? It's the tires, man. I think it was um, in the first round, I think I think Morbidelli had a technical issue. I think that's what it was. But after that, it just seems like they're missing something with the setup. Um, Maybe trying something different, it didn't work. Yeah, I think so, because obviously at Qatar at the night races, everyone runs the soft tire there. So if you can't make that soft last all the way through the race and, or if you can't have it to work well off the bat, you're just going to be doomed. Um, I, and honestly, I, I hate to say it and I'm probably going to get some hate for it, but I think Rossi's day in the sun is just kind of over. I think uh, he's reached the age where it's just not so snappy quick anymore and it might be time to hang it up. Well, yeah, but you got to remember, I think he qualified uh, 21st, but he might've been like a second off the pace, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's extremely but close. It's so close. So close, but at an older age, at, well, not even an older age, but those, those, you know, 10 tenths within that second gap are the hardest 10 tenths to find ever. Right. Like there's, those are the 10 tenths that separate everyone. Right. Like, and not to say that Rossi can't do it or whatever else, but 
I will want the guy to get another podium or even another win so badly because I know Italy would just burn down as a whole. Um, but you know, I would no. love to see him get his tenth world title. That'd be great just to see him achieve it. And I'm sure yeah. he'd be like, "All right, I'm done. Thank I'll you, see very you guys. Much. Thank you very much." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if it's gonna happen. But I'm somebody, sure. you know, I'm not able to race in my prime, I guess, because mm-hmm. of money. And yeah. so I have it in my mind. I want to race until I'm a hundred or you know, when I'm very old, because I think it's possible. I don't know if I'll be able to afford it and I hope yeah. I can with my business, but um, you never know. So I think that you can still be very competitive at an older age. Um, I just think maybe for him, he doesn't need to be, he's already a multimillionaire True. with a hot girlfriend and you know, he doesn't need anything. Yeah. So at some point you lose that, fire you lose that even if you love it he's 25 years in of you know a championship yeah. season going to 14 countries every year yeah you know, that takes a toll on you i think and i don't know i'm not his friend i don't talk to him but i would have to imagine that from his early days becoming a professional in the first couple of seasons are vastly different than how he feels today yeah and, and that's actually yeah that's something i left out of my whole little spiel there is I think, yes, he still loves the sport and he wants to win in everything else. But at a certain point, maybe that the, the core of that passion has kind of gotten away from him. The core of that, that, that real drive has kind of gotten away from him a little bit, but still he can't, obviously he's the goat. So you yeah. can't, you can't discount anything about him. You can't take it away from him, but it takes a certain type of crazy sometimes to get that lap time. Right. Especially yes. if it's in bad conditions, like Marquez just seems to, thrive in those horrible conditions or drying tracks yeah uh, you know that's his forte but other people uh shy away from that because it is more dangerous you have more mm-hmm. risk people don't like that as much no no um jack miller's one of those guys too he's an absolute psychopath in the in the semi-damp conditions like i think it was argentina um a year or two ago um when he was on the primark the primark bike and um yeah, uh, Q2, like half damp track. I think he almost crashed like six times on his way to pole. And it was just like out of the seat here and there. And it's just like at, at a certain point, uh, when does everyone else go? Yeah, I think I'm good. I'll just uh, walk away from that one. And no, thank you. <laughs> like, I, I can't even imagine riding one of those bikes in the dry, let alone a, a, a damp track on slicks or, or in the rain. Like, no way. No way. Pro- hats off. <laughs> It's all about the fundamentals, right? You just, you can break, you can turn and you can accelerate, but you can't combine any of them. Yeah. I, uh, I learned that one the hard way. Um, I never, my first time riding in the rain ever, um, not ever, but like ever on proper rain tires and not on a go-kart track was in 2018, the day after I set pole for Moto America. So I was on pole at my home track by almost a second. And then, you know, I was feeling great. I knew I had the pace to maybe run away with it. It was probably still going to be a fight, but um, then it rained all weekend. And literally the sighting lap of that race was my first ever time on rain tires around oh. New Jersey. And if you've ever ridden Jersey in the rain, it's like an ice skating rink. It's the worst place ever. And everyone, on the, even in the uh, Moto America paddock will agree with you. There, It's a nice, it's an ice skating rink. And I think on the warm up, on the sighting lap alone, I had like three moments where I had the rear come around on me. And like, I was like coming up to the, the grid spot. I was like, oh my God, I'm really about to do this. <laughs> Into turn one, I, I get passed by two guys and then they both wipe out right in front of me. And then, you know, I, I hold them, everyone up, up for a few laps, t- tiptoeing my way around. And 
after that race, I was like, yep, I'm never riding in the rain again. <laughs> like it, it just takes everything I enjoy about riding a motorcycle and throws it out the window. So I'm like, I'm good with that. No, thank you. Yeah, it's a high stress environment. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, not fun. Cold, wet, just scary. <laughs> that imagine, enjoy it. imagine doing it on slicks before the track is ready. No, no, thank you. Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh man. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what they live for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and that's kind of also that experience is kind of what <clears throat> for me kind of separated, like made my dreams, like kind of come down a notch where I got into the sport late in life. Right. Like uh, I didn't start riding until I was 17 and whatever else. And sure. That's not late in life for, per se, but like, if you want to get to a pro level and be there and actually like do well, it's a little bit late in life to get into the sport. And um, you know, I, I did my thing. I did the Moto America thing. I, I had some solid, you know, top five finishes and everything else. And um, after that, kind of looking at my position of how I got into everything and whatnot, I was like, all right, you know, and how much money I spent on those whatever four weekends alone of Moto America was astronomical. And, you know, granted, I had great sponsors who helped me out, which was awesome. But after that, I was kind of like, um, is this even, you know, what's not not what's the point, but like, more so of, going back to the long-term focus kind of thing of I could keep trying to do this. I could keep, you know, throwing my head at the wall and everything I have at the wall to try to make it stick and make it happen. But at the end of the day, what's it for? Yeah. I guess you know? um, people think you can get picked up by a big team and maybe that would have been possible, but there's no big teams. There's, there's, no no big fact- teams. there's no factory teams anymore. No. How did no. that happen? Oh my gosh. The money just, <laughs> it comes back to the, um, the culture of it, right? Like there's the uh, viewership is not the viewership is down, but the care, like nobody cares is what's going on. And, you know, you got, you know, a, a single, I bet yeah, a single, single basketball player in the NBA probably makes as much as the entire Moto America paddock makes in a year, you know? Um, and it's just, those resources are so focused elsewhere and um, which, you know, you can't necessarily blame them either. Cause if I, um, if I was a, if I was the owner of a business that wasn't focused around motorcycles and some motorcycle person came up to me, and was like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. You should, you know, check this out. Maybe you could support me, whatever. I'd be like, why would I do that when, you know, I can do X, Y, and Z for less money and with more exposure and whatever else. So I get that side of it. Um, but I would say, you know, Kyle Wyman just got a Panera bread sponsorship. I did see that. I and did everybody's see that. talking about it, man. <laughs> yeah. That is a big deal. And we need more things like that for sure. Because Um, the racing community knows that every sponsor is really valuable. So when people get a a good sponsor like that, I saw, I must've saw 15 posts about Kyle Wyman and, and uh, eating Panera. They got to pick two and all this stuff. I was like, I I love Panera. I think I could get a Panera too. (laughs) Yeah. I I agree with that. Um, And on that same vein, I was uh, watching something last night. Are you familiar with uh, Gypsy Tales? It's like a motocross podcast. The guy's Australian. It, yeah. yeah. Um, he had someone on from one of the owners of the Geico Supercross team. And he was basically talking about how back in the day, um, they would get like annual reports about how much marketing revenue or how much basically marketing dollars their sponsorship equated to for Geico. And for some years, it was like $40 million. And, you know, that's how much they would have had to spend to get the same amount of marketing from what they got from the team. Um, And if we can just 
if we can do whatever we can, I don't know what the magic formula is or anything to get it. So road racing or Moto America is in that same state where suddenly we're bringing in these sponsors where they can say, because of this sponsorship, we've got, you know, another $4 million in revenue this year. That would be huge. And then I think that would, you'd see a huge turnaround in the sport. And so here's my plan. I'm focusing on building a business that mm -hmm. can sell products and also building a podcast network that I can talk to people and promote all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I've already had some of my vendors on here. And so I want to build like a, a, a business that can, that can uh, imagine I get a sponsor, I can promote them on the podcast and then I can sell their products too. Yeah. So not only am I selling their parts, but promoting them. And, you know, hopefully I'll have more than a couple thousand subscribers at that point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I guess that's the kind of the idea is to give them more because not every racer can actually sell their products. No. How many, how many people can sell exhaust for uh, an exhaust company? Very few racers can do that. So I'm kind of a, I'm a business now. I'm not a person anymore. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of the similar approach I've taken to my YouTube thing. Um, whereas I can offer the people who support me a lot more value through their support of me. Um, and just by, you know, giving them some extra exposure. Um, granted, like, um, I'll never be able to fully pay these people back or anything like that for some of the things they've done for me. It's just, you know, over the moon. I, again, can't say how grateful I am to some of these people. And um, I just want to try to give back to them as much as I can in any way I can. Um, so that's just how I kind of see YouTube as another opportunity for that. And so uh, you want to dive into your YouTube uh channel a little bit tell me about your your uh how your filming strategy sure um so i figured out real quick after my first weekend of trying to film racing stuff it was like oh this is harder than i thought it would be because like i didn't realize how in the zone i was all weekend long until it's suddenly like oh i got to think about filming this or filming that or getting a gopro on the bike before the race and everything else it kind of adds a whole nother level to the thing um, track days and like whatever else, like more casual events, it's a lot easier. Um, there's, I'm not like, I don't have that pressure put on myself, but, um, I always just try to get like a, an intro clip. Um, cause I, I also find that when I'm filming stuff, I always think, oh, I need to film more or else I'm not going to have enough to make a video. And then I sit down to edit it and I'm sitting there with 45 minutes of footage <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. And then it ends up being like 10 minutes of actual video. So it's like, it's also like maintaining that balance of um, getting the important messages across and getting like the good solid intro to what's going on and explanation what to expect. Um, the intro, I think, is like the most important part, obviously, because that's what's going to grab people's attention and whatever else. So getting that intro and then um, just getting footage for the rest of it. So on race weekends, at least when I was rating racing middle uh, lightweight class, the, the grids aren't exactly the biggest and I was pretty much consistently either winning those races or having someone else like Tyler Scott check out in front of me where I couldn't touch him. So it was pretty boring to watch unless you were like really nitpicking lines and everything else. So I found myself where I'd have, you know, three races with highlights in one video. Um, but then I, uh, I did one race at Jersey one weekend where I ended the middleweight race on my SV. So I got, I'm on a bike, a grid of like 30, 35 expert 600s. And there I am on my little SV650. <laughs> and like seven rows back or something. And I just did it to kind of as like a, as a joke, not a joke, but just to kind of like see what would happen, how good I could do. Um, and I ended up running in the top five for a few laps. And I think I finished like sixth or seventh in the race. 
And awesome. um, that's my most viewed video to date. Like it has 13,000 <laughs> views at this point, just because it's like the title is racing 600s on my SV650. Um, so it's just a balance of trying to think about, I also try to put myself in the audience's shoes. Like, like what would I want to watch if, you know, the roles were reversed and I was a guy on YouTube and I, I found this new YouTube channel where this guy makes motorcycle stuff. What do I want to watch? I would want to see more of, you know, what do you pack to bring to the track? What's your pit setup like? Why did you set your tire pressure there? Why did you make that move on the racetrack? Why didn't you try this? And why didn't that work? And whatever else, right? Just kind of giving more of an explanatory side of things. Because um, again, unless you're there road racing yourself, it's hard to be like, this is why I didn't make that pass. Unless someone explained it to you, you just wouldn't know, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and that's what like, same thing with like Jersey. Um, it's a track I have a lot of laps at. It's my home track, if you will. And, you know, I, I coach for track day organizations as well. Um, Evolve GT, they're one of my, they're my main track day organization. And they're honestly one of my main supporters. So I should have sh uh, shouted them out sooner, but they're my guys. Um, so I've coached for them there a lot. And I know the track really well. Um, and, you know, I see people constantly making the same mistakes there, whether it be in, you know, beginner, intermediate or the advanced group, like constantly rushing the chicane, which is three, three A, B and C. And like, it's the textbook. It always happens. And in my videos, I, you know, I always break it down whenever I'm, well, I've broken it down when I'm in turn three and like, look, look, I'm here and I'm doing this at this point on the track because of this. And the amount of comments and messages I've gotten where it's been like, oh my God, that's helped me so much with that. It's just been super rewarding. And I just wish there was something like that when I was first getting into it. Yeah. Sorry about the alarm. That's no, my, uh, I have an hour and 15 minutes to go to sleep alarm. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but it's so valuable to have that information because unless somebody's telling you, you wouldn't understand. And for yes. new riders, the track layouts aren't always designed like the curbings are in certain places, not necessarily because you should be there, because yes. that's where they think cars might be sometimes. Most of the time. Um, that's why they're designed that way. And so mm -hmm. motorcycles don't always use the curbings, but people think they should be next to them all the time. Definitely. So sometimes you should take wider lines than you expect because it makes you know the straightaway longer and this part over here is just getting to the straightaway the s section sometimes so yes it's all about utilizing you know the longest the longest portion you can be on the gas and throwing away everything before it pretty much yeah um and, and something else too i you know, I, I, with the track day scene the the number one thing that i see you know people that cause crashes that you know, cause frustration that cause, you know, uh, mistakes and things like that. It's just a lack of trail breaking and trail breaking is a, a hard concept to explain to people who aren't super familiar with track stuff, um, who aren't familiar with, you know, racing or whatever else, or, or just even new motorcycle riders or well, even experienced motorcycle riders don't fully understand trail breaking and trying to explain to someone is like, you need to be on the brakes all the way to the apex. And then you release the brakes, you stand the bike up and you get on the throttle. Like that's, that's the order of operations there. Like saying that to someone can sometimes just go right over the head. Like most of the time I feel like it does. And then, whereas a video, you can literally watch and listen to my RPMs and how they're changing and where I'm getting on throttle and where I'm not. And, you know, also videos where I'm riding with another, you know, less experienced rider, I'm trying to coach them and I can point out their errors. Be like, look, see how you can hear their throttle crack open four feet behind the, before the apex, they're just asking to high side themselves to the moon. And here's why, because yeah. you know, X, Y, and Z, whereas it, it's hard to give that level of 
communication on track or to, you know without visual reference right and i don't people i don't think people understand the detail or the nuance it's like uh, a chef like a really great chef um could cut up an onion a thousand times better than i could but i could cut up the onion it's like yeah. they're thinking the same thing well i can step on the brake or you know i can pull the brake lever um but that's not what we're talking about you know it's it's um millimeter perfect you're trying to be extremely deliberate with your controls um Mm -hmm. you're not just letting off and just dumping the 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 brake lever you have to be extremely smooth uh something that stuck with me that i think helped me a lot is the the fastest guy has the slowest hands yes so that means you have to be extremely precise with your hand movements. There's no chopping the throttle. There's no whacking the throttle open. Mm-hmm. Maybe only if you're tra- if you're banging gears on the on the straightaway. Yeah. And you don't have a great quick quick shifter, I guess. Yeah. Literally, the most important part of your throttle is that first four or five percent. The faster, excuse me, the faster you can get to that first four or five percent, where you're just cracking it open initially at apex. That's, that's the key, right? You're, you're looking for the minimal, minimal amount of time between brake pressure going to zero and throttle going up to at least 1%. You're like, that gap should be nil to none, right? And I don't think a lot of people understand that where they want to get to the apex, stand the bike up and just whack, whack it open, you know? Yeah. And it's just never, never a healthy ending there. And then uh, once you get more experience you realize now you're breaking too much now you can actually go like 13 miles an hour faster in that same corner that you mm-hmm. thought you couldn't go any faster mm-hmm. or people when they're they're you know they're breaking their brains out before turn one realize that they can actually carry those brakes into turn one and then therefore move their breaking point back 50 feet and they're like oh my god i can do that and it's like yeah you can do that yeah yeah do you think there's ever a situation where you don't trail break um Not really. No, like I really can't think of like I'm trying to think of any like unless if you don't need the brakes for a turn, obviously you don't need to trail brake. But if you're braking for a corner, you should be trail braking. That's it's just, just proper it etiquette. It's just right? how it is. Yeah, that's just the way to go fast. And if you disagree, I'm sorry, you're stupid and you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, I had people disagree with me for so long about um, the front brake is more powerful than the rear brake. It's rear such a, a hell of a tool. It's 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 uh, beneficial, but it's not everything, right? Yes. Um, I I mean, you're you're. I I'm not preaching what I practice here because if I'm being honest, on a mini bike, on like go kart tracks and everything, I use the rear brake constantly. I trail brake with it. I use it for mid corner adjustment. You put me on a on a big bike on a full size track, and honestly, I forget about the rear brake. And I know it's not proper and I know it can help me. And I know the benefits between it, it a it's slow, it so much more braking power than you would think comes from the rear brake. And also the benefits of trailing with the rear brake are huge. Like the way it helps the bike track into the corner and even um, on double apex corners, the way you can use the rear brake mid corner to just kind of lightly get on it to help bring the bike back in towards the apex is immense. Um, and of course I'm, you know, preaching to myself here as well, but um then then you see the opposite as well i feel like you see guys on the track who are using 80 percent rear brake and 20 percent front and it's like that should be reversed in my head ideally it should be about 80 percent 90 percent front and then the extra little bits the rear 
Yeah, it definitely helps uh, stabilize you a lot. Yes. I would always use the rear brake coming up to stoplights because, uh, and, and I would love to practice slow speed stuff in parking lots, mm. like going zero miles an hour, just seeing how long you can not move and yeah. just balance and just, just modulating the clutch a little bit and using that rear brake. Um, it helps stand the bike up all the time. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it definitely can decrease your radius in those double apex or any, any corner. Yes. Um, which is definitely beneficial. And I would always use it um, for elevation. If you're going like, imagine road Atlanta coming mm -hmm. down the last turn, I would always use it there. So it helps um, keep the, the bike down. down. Yeah. yeah. So you don't go up too high. Yeah. And that, it helps calm the bike down so much in braking zones. Um, like if you're, if you're heavy on the brakes going into a fast braking zone, you know, often you can get the bike kind of light where the rear end's kind of wiggling. The rear brake just basically, right? You got your, not for you, but for the other people, but you got your rear, your bike up here. And then just on the rear brake, just helps squat it down and just kind of get that compression into the shock in the braking zone where otherwise all your weight's going forward. The rear brake puts some of that weight back on the rear and just stabilizes it all. Um, I was, my, my rear brake exposure really happened at, I uh, won a free YCRS, Yamaha Championship Riding School back in 2017. Basically, my first year out of the minis, they decided I was, you know, they had a scholarship program and I got selected to do this, uh, this school with them, which was pretty cool. So I flew out to Arizona. I got to ride with Kyle Wyman and a few of the other guys there. And at the end of the school, they always do the thing where they're like giving you guys different drills to do while you're doing a lap. And the one was like rear brake only. And I was like, all right, all right. So I, go, I knew I should be using the rear. And then I did it for that lap. And I was like, oh, my God. Like I was almost near the same braking markers where I was just using the fronts. And it's like, if I could just take that little extra bit and apply it to my racing all the time, I would probably be faster than I am, but here I am still not doing it. <laughs> Maybe this season we'll see. Uh, maybe I just need a sweet thumb break. I sell thumb breaks. Ooh, oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> they're not super cheap, obviously, but, no. uh, but they're pretty trick, man. They look yeah. pretty cool. I think I actually, uh, it's Akasato. Mm -hmm. and uh there might be another brand i think that uh sells them now so yeah they're out there and they're available uh, i think they're in the couple hundred dollar range but yeah. if it helps you ride better i mean it's worth every penny you look at some of the moto gp guys they have like three levers on their left hand they got a clutch they got a start device i don't even know what it all does that's the cool setup i've seen um is i think i saw it first on on johnny ray's videos he posted one where he showed his whole uh clutch le side setup and his clutch levers like pointed way up in the sky and his, uh, there's another lever right in the front and the clutch levers up top because you only use it for the starts on a super bike right you got auto blip and quick shifters so then you have you know the rear brake is almost like a clutch lever there for him which is yeah. definitely a cool setup and that's the biggest thing that's prevented me is just i struggle so much because I get up on the um, the balls of my feet on the pegs when I'm going into a corner. So right, right hand corner, my right foot's up on the ball of its feet and I can't get to the brake lever when I'm doing that. And I think that's the biggest thing that's kind of um, pushed me away from using the rear brake is just because of how I put my feet. Um, I think but. so many people feel the same way. Um, that's just, it's so awkward. You can put it there, but then you're not putting your leg in the right position for at least the normal position you're used to yes yes so it's just a different uh different feeling and i always drag my toes on the ground so i always got to be careful about not putting my feet too far underneath the foot pegs yeah i, I always uh 
on my SV, at least I have to, I, I have a vortex rear sets on it, but I have to shift. Uh, basically the, the pegs have a break off point where they're supposed to snap when you crash. And I cut my foot pegs down to that point just so I have that extra bit of toe clearance. Um, Cause it's, it makes a huge difference actually. Yeah. And I always have to use those titanium toe sliders. Otherwise I'll eat right through the boot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily I, I, with the, between the cutting the foot peg and having the rear sets as high as they go, I've avoided destroying too many boots, but I still go through about a pair of super techs every year, which sucks. But here we are. <laughs> and those aren't cheap. Those are consumables oh, though. Those are consumables. Cause they were the first boots I ever bought was a pair of super techs. And um, honestly, they feel like you're wearing a sneaker. And after oh, yeah. experiencing that, like even just trying on a cheaper boot, I was like, I, I it's not worth like, I'm going to spend the extra money and the product is truly worth that extra money. Well, they so, have like torsion control for your ankle and all that. And I have, they got like the inner booty. Ones. Yeah. They're awesome. They're awesome. Um, I think I've had three or four of those myself. Yep. Yep. And it uh, seems like most racers have the mentality. I'm not going to buy the entry level. Why would you buy the entry level? It's like, I'm yeah. just going to buy the best one. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, one thing left on the list, though, for sure, is one of the uh, uh, airbag suits, the undersuits, because uh, my uh, Tai Chi suit that I have is compatible with them. And, you know, it sucks that they're whatever, 12, 1400 bucks. That's a that's almost another suit right there. So um, but if in hindsight, if I had had it about two years ago, I probably wouldn't have separated my shoulder. So, you know, it's it's worth it. But it's just one of those bullets I don't want to bite, but I'm going to have to, you know, uh a suit looks really a lot better than the hospital bill. Yeah, it does. I know it does. <laughs> I know it. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's like, where do you want to draw the line on your gear? Yeah, that's what it comes down to. And um, what, what do you think about the, uh, the Liat neck braces? I haven't seen any of those in road racing yet. They do I, make them. Yeah, I, I actually, no, I've seen one or two guys use them on track, but I, that's not for me. That's not for me because... I, I'm, I turn my head so much that I just, and the idea of just something kind of restricting me here, just, it doesn't sound like I would enjoy it. Yeah. That's the big barrier. It's like, how do you have a neck brace that, that keeps your neck from breaking? That yes. Also allows you to do this. Yes. Yeah, so it doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> yeah. Pretty oh, difficult. Man. Yeah. That's actually on that topic real quick. Um, vision and turning your head. That's if there's anyone um, getting new into the sport, new into track days or racing, I'd say that's the number one thing to focus on out the gate is vision. Um, cause vision is number one. And the rest of the, the rest of the stuff follows after that. Cause if you're not I, looking I, through a corner, you're not going to go fast. I think of it as I come from hockey, from uh, ice hockey. I think of Wayne Gretzky, you know, he had great mm -hmm. vision. He could just see the ice and see what was happening and just know where to be sort of, sort of thing. Yeah. And so I think that's so important obviously looking through the corners, I shouldn't say obviously, but because you should always be looking through the corners because you're going so fast. First of all, you need to see as far as you possibly can. Mm. Um, and to see maybe a stricken rider or rider on the ground, um, could be an animal, you know, it could be a flag you're trying to look out for. Um, but also, you know, vision is important as far as seeing the other, other riders in front of you. Imagine you have a train of three or four people and, you can't see your braking marker anymore. So yeah. you have to change up where you're going to look a little bit and trying to be as close to the guy in front of you, it, it hinders your vision. And when you've got your head a foot off the ground, trying to you know maximize your body lean angle, it hinders your vision. It looks different yeah. down there. 
Yeah. And that's a, that's another benefit. So when I'm doing um, the track days, when I'm racing, I only mount my GoPro onto the tank of the bike and use like an arm to point it over the windshield a little bit. Um, but at track days, I'll actually mount it on my helmet. Um, cause I'm not as worried about, you know, things going wrong there, but still of course uh, aware of it. But, um, on that camera angle, it's nice. Cause when I'm doing the voiceovers, I can be like, now look like at this point, the camera is pointed right at the apex. I hit the apex and you see the whole camera angle shift to the point where you can't see my bike in the frame anymore or anything else. And what the camera's seeing is literally exactly what I'm looking at. So that should tell you right there that I'm looking at the apex, I'm hitting the apex and immediately vision shifts, bike gets picked up and power gets put on. And that visual representation again is super handy, I think. Oh yeah. And there's a, there's a bunch of guys in my region when I was racing who they look like owls. I'm like, how can you even turn your neck that far? Like my head doesn't go that far. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I got some pictures. I have one in particular. It was uh, Devin Perlinfine. I'm following him around mid Ohio and I'm just staring at him. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Why am I just looking at this guy in front yeah. of me? You know, it's almost like uh, not embarrassing, but like I'm not, I'm doing the wrong thing there. Yeah, it's always those situations are so easy in hindsight to be like, why was I doing that? Because that's the biggest thing when you're following someone in a race. Um, I feel like there's one of two things that happen to, to people who are make, like not doing it correctly, if you will. You know, I'm probably talking to myself again here. So um, is a staring at the back of the person in front of you and not trying to look around them or look forward past them at all. And B, um, following the person but the entire lap you're almost following them on a line. Like you're going to pass them without actually passing them. Cause then you're giving up the faster line than on a person that you're faster than, but you're on the slow line. Now, even on places where you're not trying to pass them, you're just there because you're right behind them. So, you know, in those situations, just lapping behind someone, you know, following them, you know, in line on the correct line until you are re ready to make the pass and then do it no point in following them around on a line like you're going to pass them without passing and missing out on the ideal draft yes yes for sure you got a double whammy there oh yeah um, um yeah so there's a lot of there's so many nuances of racing um i've been doing sim racing indoors on oh, my yeah? rig upstairs that's sweet i'm jealous you know we talk about buying the best of everything well i bought the best wheel and pedals that i could find uh fanatic uh yeah. dd1 pedals and the V3 in, inverted um, pedals, it's awesome. And But I bought the cheapest mounting system that mounted to the base, uh, the, the seat and what yeah. it mounts to, and it's a piece of crap. <laughs> yeah, that's a holdback, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man, I yeah. bought the wrong one. So uh, I've been just struggling with this thing because the it's just not stable. So when, yeah. you, go to, when you go to turn, first it goes like this, goes side <laughs> to side, and it goes front to back it's like yeah. i have that new feature that they have you can change in the, the formula angle. one car yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like that but it just the whole thing comes down yeah 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 that's so, definitely not ideal <laughs> but you know what i think it's uh it makes me be stronger because i have to actually keep the wheel in the same spot mm -hmm. so it's like a it's like a isolation workout so mm -hmm. i should start my strava workout on my watch before i yeah yeah, yeah. do that <laughs> that's where i should start off now i've always wanted to take the jump and and then dive into the sim stuff it's just again, comes back to it. Why would I go spend a, you know, a couple hundred dollars on a SIM? That's a set of tires right there. So. Well, yeah, I, I figured I'm not going back to the racetrack for, I think, two or three years. So this mm -hmm. is my fix in the living room. Completely reasonable. Completely. And plus, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm behind me here. I got a stationary bike that I bought this winter. Oh, there you it's, go. It's trying to stay fit. Um, 
things like that are sucking up my money too. So. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, we're about an hour and a half already. Okay. Um, is there any sponsor shout outs you want to give? Yeah, I'll do a little bit of a laundry list real quick, not laundry list, but, um, metric devil moto. If you need suspension work in the Northeast, he's your guy, check him out. Um, trackside parts club parts distributor at the racetrack as well. Uh, New Jersey, mini GP, um, great place to go to learn to ride a motorcycle on a mini track without the high costs and everything else. And, um, honestly well actually i didn't touch on this at all but to do a little segue here um mini gp right you have brandon posh xavier zayat uh anthony maziato benjamin smith um ben gladi gus rodeo who else am i thinking forgetting about well there's six current and one or two past moto america riders that have all come out of the same program and myself included uh, so that's seven right that's seven people in five, six years that have come out of that program right to Moto America and done very well. So if there's nothing else that speaks for it, I think that does. And the, the value of a mini bike and learning what those things do is it's immense. Um, so definitely if you're interested in learning and making the transition to track or even just becoming a better track rider, check out mini GP. Um, and then past that Evolve GT track days and N2 uh, track days as, as well, both supporters of mine. And Thank you to all those guys for all the support over the years. And of course, mom and dad too, if they're watching, couldn't do it without them. But um, yeah, that's, that sums it up pretty well. All right. Very good. And any, uh, do you have any parting message for the world? Um, if you want to keep up with what's going on with my race season and everything else, check out my YouTube channel and my Instagram and um, yeah, come check out what uh, goes on in a day in my life and see how we can uh, do well, do if, see if we can do well this season. And um, how about yourself? You got anything to add? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to work on getting this edited and posted in the next couple of weeks. It'll probably be a week or two before I put this one out there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to be eating some dinner later. I'm, I'm hungry. So it's, yeah, it's steak time for me as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get some food, uh, take a shower and go to bed. So awesome. uh, uh, thank you for coming on here and talking with me. Hey, and, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Awesome. Again. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.